we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. It's a podcast about why people believe weird things. My name is Kian, and right here at the mysterious Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork in the south of Ireland, I investigate stories of the strange from mystery and history, always attempting to remain critical, but hopefully never cynical. Now this episode, it's all about the work of Michael Crichton, in particular his 1970s novel Eaters of the Dead. And the film version, of course, from 1999, where the name was changed to The 13th Warrior. Here to talk about uh, Crichton's book and the film and the background to the film as well, the real-life historical background, uh, Dr. Edward Guimont is returning to the show. He's been on previously to talk about Flat Earth within colonial history. He's been on to talk about the myth of the living mammoth. Uh, in North America and other places. So he's been on, I think this is his third appearance, and he always brings uh, a fantastic amount of knowledge to whatever subject we are talking about. I think this is going to be a really interesting one because of the provenance of this novel. I'm a huge Crichton fan myself. I've done an episode, a very detailed and long episode, about uh, the Jurassic Park novel and the ideas behind it, uh, Crichton's ideas specifically about science and I think on this episode in this interview we're going to talk a little bit about sort of Crichton's place in the history of the lost world genre, Crichton's place within the history of sort of ideas about cryptozoology. We're also going to be talking about the real life history that he's dealing with in this novel and that is the historical works of Ibn Fadlan, so the travels of a Muslim gentleman uh, round about the year 1000 I believe. And we're also going to be talking about mysterious creatures, cryptozoology, relict hominids, as they are presented in both the book and the film. And I think uh, Edward has a few surprises up his sleeve as well, because he's been doing some research on this and has been sending me some rather tantalizing uh, uh, ideas of extra sort of cryptid-related stuff that he's uncovered during his reading of this real historical stuff. So I think this one is going to be a really, really brilliant episode. What else do I want to say? I want to say that, as always, you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. And I have a massive, massive thanks this week to uh, the person known only as Architect Apterix, which is a, a portmanteau of, uh, I suppose, Architect and the ancient bird Archaeopteryx, who has um, listens from New York, I believe, and sent in a very, very, very generous amount of coffee to support the show and uh, just so folks out there know um, all of that support goes towards usually buying books for the podcast I buy a lot of books I do a lot of reading um, and uh, I'm, tr- I'm always trying to track down you know good analysis academic reports and original newspaper reports and stuff like that uh, to make the episodes as good as they can be so huge huge thanks to Architectopteryx from the bottom of my coffee laden heart so that was a huge a huge bonus and a huge um a huge help during a week that uh, I was incredibly busy and honestly didn't have a whole lot of time to do anything podcast related and that really um it really helps to know that folks out there are getting something out of the show so that means a lot to me if you wish to get in touch as always folks you can do so on instagram where i am more busy these days so that's at white atlantic weird podcast 
and also on Twitter where I'm at Strange Ireland, where I've I've been less busy than I used to, and that will probably continue. All I'm really doing there is uh, letting people know when there are new episodes, uh, supporting those in kind of minimal ways, and also supporting some stuff that my friends do. So if you if there's something there uh, you think I should see, um, just tag me in it, and I will I will get around to it. We'll see how that works out anyway. So that's all I really have to say about that. My beer for this episode is from 8 Degrees Brewing, which is brewed here in Cork in a town called Mitchellstown. I'm sure I've mentioned them before. I'm having a Knockmaildown Stout, named after the Knockmaildown Mountains, which are on the border of Tipperary and Tipperary and Waterford. And I've driven through them a few times uh, for work this week already. So it's on my mind. It's a lovely stout and I do recommend it. So what else do I want to say? Oh, I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about The Lost World. It's been on my mind this week. Um, so The Lost World, obviously, Arthur Conan Doyle, 1912, did a whole episode on the origins of it and um, kind of its connections to later dinosaur fiction, lost world fiction, uh, lost race fiction. To me, it has always been a, a primordial source. I, I was aware of it from very young and I was sort of captivated by it and fascinated by it from a very young age and I've realised that probably the first time I ever came across it was in the old Ladybird books editions. They, they a British company that uh, did kids books for many decades, probably still do, and in the 80s they ran a series where you could buy these like classic versions or versions of classic stories that were fully illustrated and they came with a, a cassette that you would put into your cassette player and there was like a, a reading of the book with sound effects and music and stuff like that so a little bit like some kinds of audio fiction or yeah audio fiction that are, are popular now in in the podcast world so I definitely rented this book from the library as a a very young kid. I didn't have the tape, but I realised this is probably my first exposure to the story. And and I found a really nice... Well, firstly, the the tape itself is on YouTube and I've been listening to it and that's good fun. It's about 40 minutes long. And I found a rundown of the book with scans of all the beautiful illustrations from an old blog post on a blog called Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs or Chasmosaurs. I, I say Chasmosaurs. They're triceratops type animals ceratopsians of some sort this is from 2015 so fairly old but yeah lovely scans of all of the illustrations from the lost world and to me it's always been one of the most important keystone books in the history of ideas about cryptozoology and and ideas about uh, sort of adventure fiction and adventure stories obviously there are precedents and there have been dinosaurs in fiction prior to this but this this is kind of when dinosaur fiction comes of age. This is like one of the first times they are front and center and and the point of the of the novel and not just a sort of a side element. And I think as a very young kid uh, coming across this and being obsessed with dinosaurs anyway, and then I think this is where I got a lot of my ideas about you know the the colonial period as well, though I wouldn't have known it. So the whole concept of, you know, fellows in in pith helmets and khaki going out to exotic places and having adventures and making all these cool discoveries about science like those are ideas that are are very deep within all of my interests to this day and I think it might have started with you know this potentially this version of the story because the illustrations are tremendous and they're very old it's very old-fashioned style of dinosaurs It's, it's a very sort of mid-20th century depiction of dinosaurs and this blog post goes through 
all of that because the blog is is largely about paleo art so the author knows what he's talking about and he's able to explain the provenance of the different ideas about the the types of dinosaurs that are in it and um, he makes uh, the, the the illustrator has made the incredible choice to pretty much cast professor challenger from the lost world as none other than brian blessed who of course would have been a prominent british actor at the time and i i think in my head canon this has always been what Professor Challenger looked like. Sadly, uh, Brian Blessed in real life never did get to play Professor Challenger. I think it's one of the great last acting roles of history. He's probably too old now. There have been some great challengers out there, but this guy uh, has always been it in the back of my head. And it's amazing for me to go back and see this book, which is from, I think, 1987? Question mark. Um, thereabouts anyway. Uh, like th- that he was played, or he's he's drawn as looking just like Brian Blessed, which I think is is absolutely deliberate uh, on the part of the author. So absolutely worth a look. Um, really old-fashioned style of of paleo art, but just wonderfully evocative. All the, all the classic scenes from The Lost World are there, including the, the nighttime scene where Malone goes down to the lake and sees all the range of extinct creatures coming to feed. That's a wonderful painting. Um, I love the paintings of the uh, pterosaur nest, very evocative very spooky very almost like a horror element there which i think is very much channeling doyle's words he uses some very negative language to describe the pterosaurs he makes them out to be very gothic and the they're all squatting on top of these mounds in a guano filled crater with smoke blowing everywhere and he says they're they're like they have these horrible rolling red eyes and they look like hunched devils and they look like you know witches wrapped up in in their wings like a cape and the artist has absolutely gone to town on this one. So I had a lot of fun with this article and it brought back a lot of memories. And like I said, this is a story that is very key into my own development in, in, in things I'm interested in. But I genuinely do believe that the history of cryptozoology owes a lot to the popularity of this book, whether or not um, people are aware of this. Just the, the mere concept of going out into the world and discovering you know, relic uh, extinct animals is key to the whole cryptozoological thing. And it's something that uh, Michael Crichton himself played with later, of course, with his book The Lost World, which is named after The Lost World, obviously. He even goes so far as to have an early chapter, if I recall, where um, a character, probably Malcolm, describes this idea in science of finding a quote-unquote lost world, which is the idea of, you know, coming across living fossils, which I think he invented, I don't think... That's a real scientific idea, but it's just he's tipping his hat to what is very obviously the the baseline text of the whole genre. And just finally about this article, uh, somebody who pops up on this podcast often and who I reference fairly often when talking about this stuff shows up in the comments to uh, to offer uh, some ideas and some support. So if you if you do manage to take a look, see if you can uh, spot who it is I'm talking about. Okay, I think that's everything I want to say for this episode. So I'm going to have a swig of stout and get into our chat all about Eaters of the Dead and the 13th Warrior. Uh, Eddie Guimont, formerly of University of Connecticut, now incoming professor of world history at a Bristol Community College in Fall River, Massachusetts, at least starting, uh, I think September 1st is officially the first starting date of uh, it. But yeah, I mean, 
going forward, that's now what I'll be associating myself with. So a hearty congratulations. Um, Thank you very much. And this town, Fall River, has some connections to stuff we have talked about, about before and stuff we probably will talk about on this episode. It does indeed. So in a more broad sense, I'll say that it's the southern tip of the Bridgewater Triangle, which I imagine many listeners are probably somewhat familiar with as, you know, an area of spooky occurrences in Massachusetts. But specifically, uh, about 200 years ago, uh, I think 1831, there is this skeleton discovered there, uh, uh, actually by the future aunt of the serial killer Lizzie Borden, so another little connection there. But it was this uh, skeleton that was discovered with various metal uh, accompaniments on it. And of course, you know, obviously, obviously in quotes for the listeners, it could not have been a Native American skeleton, because as we know, there's savages who couldn't use metal or any of this. So obviously, it had to be a foreign, you know, distant uh, traveler from the old world. And, you know, initially, it was seen as maybe it's a Phoenician, maybe it was an Egyptian. And then, of course, it gets settled on, of course, it's a Viking explorer. And Henry Wadsworth Longfellow writes this poem, uh, the skeleton in armor of which the remains are associated with, or I think in the poem, he specifically identifies the body with Thorvald Erickson, uh, Leif Erickson's brother. And of course, nearby to Fall River, there's the Newport Tower in Newport, Rhode Island. That's been a, it was a colonial windmill, which was kind of rehabilitated as a Viking monument. A bit north, there's Dighton Rock, which has Native American pictographs that have been reinterpreted as, you know, everything from Vikings to Phoenicians to, I think, like kind of like the current museum there identifies it as like Portuguese inscriptions as there's a large Portuguese immigrant population there. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, and actually, I, I did mention this in my job interview too. Uh, I had to give a teaching presentation. I started off with the discovery of the skeleton in armor and the story of how this Native American uh, became a Viking to you know 19th century New Englanders. Uh, and as an interesting corollary as well, I think one of the uh, possible identifications of the body is uh, an Iroquois person, which would indicate that this individual had traveled very far to get to you know Massachusetts, uh, which again shows, you know, even if it's not you know, Vikings or Phoenicians from the old world. There's an interesting story of travel and you know, cross-cultural contact there as well. Uh, unfortunately, the, the remains were destroyed in a fire a couple decades subsequently, so we'll never probably know for sure, but uh, it's an interesting story from all those angles. Well, on your recommendation, I've been educating myself on some of this background. Uh, I've been reading In Search of First Contact by Annette Kolodny, which has tremendous detail on all that stuff. So if listeners are interested to hear more about um, Longfellow and the Viking or the Martello Tower, Mar sorry, uh, Newport Tower, <laughs> Martello Tower. Is <laughs> um, and, and I've just a quick shout out for my own town. There, one of the main themes of this book is about how uh, North Americans kind of wanted to reinterpret uh, the idea of the Vikings, uh, you know, trying, you know, because at different periods of history, they've been seen as, you know, uncivilized savage peoples. And then they were kind of rehabilitated at different points in time by European settlers in America who wanted to see them as being more, more heroic uh, by, you know, like you're saying, emphasizing these uh, kind of versions of history where the Vikings came, all, you know, visited America and traveled around America 
and uh, but there's also stuff connecting the Irish, and you've, I'm sure you've heard of <laughs> like New Ireland or Greater Ireland oh, as, yep. as part oh, of yeah. the Vinland story. <laughs> and one of the men, according to this book, responsible for spreading this idea was was a Cork man by the name of Beamish. And uh, Beamish, of course, is a well-known stout made here in Cork, and uh, a lot of my friends are are, are, are fond of it. So it, we, we, you know, nice to see that show up, even in in dubious historical circumstances. I'll say also in Connecticut, on the southern coast uh, near New London, uh, there's an archaeological site called the Gunji Womp, which is based on all. It's generally accepted by professional archaeologists of just being a you know colonial era, you know, the remnants of like cellars and stuff like that but of course there's this whole cottage industry of you know alternative archaeologists who are convinced that this was like actually a site built by you know irish monks two thousand years ago so there's this whole you know alternative history of you know irish came to connecticut two thousand years ago and you know built this you know holy worship site and all this uh and it's kind of similar to like the america's stonehenge phenomenon up in uh, new hampshire too and so yeah it's uh, at least in new england there's a lot of stuff with the vikings but the irish get their uh, <laughs> uh pseudo historical due as well what, what i've noticed really reading about this stuff is that any as long as it's anybody apart from the native americans it's fine you know they absolutely yeah. <laughs> the victorians were fascinated by you know how can we give the credit to literally anybody else? So for all of these things you've mentioned, like the the, the cryptograms and the, the the tower, it's like maybe it was the Phoenicians, maybe it was the Irish, the Scottish, the, the ancient Hebrew, anybody except. Yeah. And, and there's, it is. Yeah, there's it, such a racial element to it. And, and sometimes in this book, they really like, they're very clear about it, um, you know, at different points in history. It is interesting. Like for the Victorians, though, it's like they had, you know, Scots who went to, the Americas, Irish, Welsh, Vikings, you know, ancient Israel. There's not really a lot of Victorians talking about, you know, Anglo-Saxons going to. So it's it is interesting that like, they kind of write the English history out, and it's everyone except the English have been there. But yeah, well, at, at Yale University too, there was uh, in the I think it was early 1960s they had this. Uh, I think they still own it, but uh, the Vinland map, which is I think it's generally accepted to be a forgery now, but it was meant to be this uh, like a thousand year old map showing, you know, Greenland and, you know, the East coast of Canada, so, you know, proving that the Vikings had, and this was actually just a few years before uh, the Lonsdale Meadow discovery. So it was right on the cusp of this, but uh, when Yale announced that they had discovered this map or they had acquired this map that, you know, quote, proved that the Vikings had discovered the Americas before Columbus, they announced this, I think it was the day before Columbus day. And, you know, there's a big Italian American community in New Haven. And so there was this huge, you know, outpouring of like, you know, it, you know, the Italian pride marchers going against Yale. And then this whole phenomenon of like would-be politicians getting involved because they wanted to so like a, a future senator and future vice presidential candidate, Joe Lieberman, who was a so up-and-coming political figure, he was a Jewish man leading this, you know, giant, you know, Italian-American protest at Yale against this, you know, piece of, you know, obscure Viking scholarship because he was trying to get his political career start. So it just goes to show, you know, even in the 1960s, this stuff is, you know, the the various, you know, minutiae of, you know, Italian versus, you know, I guess, you know, Anglo-Saxon racial politics in New England. There's a great story from, <laughs> is it the 1893 Chicago... Chicago? Mm. World's Fair, where they like the, the sort of the, the 
people who were more interested in emphasizing the uh, Nordic parts of their history, uh, engineered the, the sailing of a Viking ship across the Atlantic to come to the event uh, as part of this big celebration. And as it travels around the Midwest, when it goes to parts like Minnesota and Wisconsin, where there's a lot of Scandinavian heritage, you know, they're cheered. And then when they go through the big cities like Chicago and New York and Boston, all the Irish come out and like throw rocks at them from bridges <laughs> because they, <laughs> they see it as an anti-Catholic thing because they're trying to de-emphasize, I suppose, Columbus. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's especially funny because, you know, the Vikings, have, you know, the Christians among them, if, you know, 500 year or a thousand years, you know, they would have been Catholic or part of the Catholic. It was just that funny thing, too, of, you know, how to transform, you know, Catholics a certain period ago can become Protestants, you know, retroactively. And the other funny thing, too, is, you know, how this is happening at a point when the relations between Sweden and Norway are deteriorating. So celebrating, you know, the Norse exploration of America, that's a way to kind of, you know, try and cement, you know, Swedish and Norwegian relations together by you know, saying, like, we're all Vikings in the past, and we all settled, you know, the Americas, and why can't we get along better today? <laughs> so all of this is leading us up eventually to talk about uh, Michael Crichton's book, Eaters of the Dead, and the film version um, from 1999. I think the book was 76, am I right? 76, yeah. So. And the film version, which was The 13th Warrior from 1999. And maybe we'll talk a bit about the historical uh, ideas that he's he's working with there. And a very long story short, it's about uh, a traveler from the Muslim world in the 900s, something like that. Yeah, late 800s, I think. Okay, and yeah. he's he, he's on a mission to meet the Bulgars up the up the Volga, and uh, he meet, he gets in with a group of Northmen, and instead gets kind of shanghaied onto a trip into the far north to defend a kingdom from a mysterious ancient enemy. Uh, and that's that's the long story short. Uh, so this, I, I mean, I'm a big Crichton fan. I know you take an interest as well. Um, oh, yeah. Not one of his better remembered pieces, I would suggest, but um, one which I think has connections to sort of, like he, he's an interesting guy for me in terms of the lost world genre, in terms of the idea of, you know, relic creatures um, obviously in Jurassic Park he gives it a kind of a scientific sheen where they're created but he's playing with these ideas in a small number of his novels isn't he he has connections to the kind of cryptozoological world in several of his works yeah this uh, or not uh, Congo which I think Congo may have been his next book he wrote after this I and there's a part in this too where he's kind of foreshadows Congo where he just mentions uh, where well, I'll, I'll try and look it up in my notes oh yeah uh, yeah, he was just talking something about brief, you know, like we don't know anything about, you know, exploration of the Congo. So you can see some of these ideas are, you know, recycling among him. But yeah, it's it's similar things of taking these kinds of, you know, claims of, uh, you know, strange bits from history in Congo. It's he's, ta well, he's taking the lost world trope itself but mixing it in with, you know, some of these, you know, mythological slash cryptozoology things from you know, Central Africa and tying them together. He's doing, you know, similar thing here. He's taking Beowulf and even Fadlan and then these almost like Victorian era theories of, you know, like maybe all these, you know, dwarf legends are actually Neanderthals and then linking them all up together there. Uh, there's a lot, like, I think one, it is interesting that there is that through line where, you know, Crichton's writing in the second half of the 20th century for the most part, but a lot of his ideas are very Victorian in yeah. their origins. Congo is is pretty much a straight up 
you know, <laughs> revisionary work of lost world fiction. It, you know, he's deliberate. I mean, uh, the most overt thing he's channeling is Haggard because, yeah, you know, it's it's basically King Solomon's mines that they're looking for, the diamond mines. Took a bet, isn't it, as to say, like, can somebody write one of these stories now? You know, now that the colonial era is gone, does it make any sense to have an adventure story like this? Um, and he he took a bit of a similar, like the genesis of uh, Eaters of the Dead comes from a similarly kind of spurious place, according to according to lore. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like the, the version of the book I have, I don't know if this is in yours, but it has an afterword from the 19, we look up, uh, yeah, he has an afterword from 1992. Uh, so I don't know if that's in your version, but he talks a bit about the origin of, and basically it was a bet where someone he knew said, you know, like Beowulf is a boring story, no one, which I, I don't agree with that. But like the whole origin was a bet of like, no one can write an interesting take on Beowulf. And this was Crichton's, I guess, like just ran with it. Uh, so <laughs> should we do a very quick um, explanation of Beowulf, just in case anybody, just so people know what the, so people will recognize the references when we talk about eaters. Um, Definitely, what are yeah. the main, what are the main things that happen and what are the locations and characters in Beowulf? So, uh, well, Beowulf, you know, with the story of uh, uh, the main character, Beowulf, who is uh, a geek, I think, like southern Sweden, if I'm remembering the you know, historical geography right, and he's basically hired uh, to go on a uh, uh, you know, expedition with a band of warriors to a kingdom called Herat, uh, or I guess it's a mead hall, where uh, the king, uh, oh, well, I'm forgetting, uh, is it Higliff? Herod is the kingdom. The king, the queen are there. They're being attacked by this monster called Grendel, which is tied in with uh, being you know, the descendant of Cain, which, again, is an interesting uh, way. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about how that reflects Christianization probably after the story, after the poem originated and it's been interpreted by <laughs> creationists afterwards as well. But uh, uh, so this monster who's uh, the descendant of Cain is attacking this mead hall. So Beowulf uh, and his warriors go and attack you know, Grendel. And I think they tear his arm off and toss him into a bog. And then Grendel's mother then attacks. They kill Grendel's mother. Then there's kind of the passive time. Beowulf goes home, becomes a king. Uh, then there's a dragon that comes and attacks uh, Beowulf's kingdom. Beowulf goes and kills the dragon, but the dragon mortally wounds Beowulf, and Beowulf kind of hands off the keys of the kingdom to his, uh, I think it's his nephew, uh, Wiglif, at the end, and then uh, and, you know, dies. But it's one of these things where it's uh, uh, one of these, I guess, quote, dark age uh, you know, poems, which was not very well known until I I really, I think it's uh, the Victorian era is really when it kind of got resurrected as part of uh, the antiquarian turn, kind of looking for, you know, this Anglo-Saxon past. And again, it's one of these stories that blends fact with fiction, like to the degree that, you know, Beowulf and most of the characters are probably fictional, but at the same time, there are some actual historical characters in here. Uh, Beowulf's uh, royal uncle and his, uh, you know, his predecessor as king, uh, Higlack, that was a real character. Uh, and actually, uh, as I was mentioning last night, I found this article talking about that in the actual historical record, Higlack was referred to as a giant because uh, there are these you know, bone remains near where he was killed that were found, you know, these giant bones, which are probably woolly mammoth bones. And so they found these 
you know, giant mammoth bones where you know, Beowulf's uh, uncle was killed. And so they assumed they were his bones. And so Higlack, even though he was a historical character, became associated with, you know, being a literal giant because uh, of these ancient <laughs> monsters that were associated with him. So does it make any sense to ask the question, like, what kind of a creature is Grendel? Or does Grendel exist as more of a, a, a religious, you know, is the significance, as you said, this biblical connection, like a, a symbol of, of evil, rather than an attempt to portray, you know, uh, any kind of animalistic being? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just part of a tradition of, uh, you know, monsters and the monstrous beings, like, throughout, uh, especially, like, Anglo-Saxon Celtic tradition, as there's, you know, some overlap, especially on these fringes. But the the part also where it's referred to as uh, being the descendant of Cain shows how, you know, this is part of the process of Christianization, where, you know, they can kind of translate, all right, we have this tradition of, you know, monsters and our, you know, pre-Christian tradition. Now we can tie them in with Christian monsters to kind of, you know, show how this connects. And the funny thing also is that later on, uh, uh, you know, creationists will look back in this and say, you know, they won't be aware of that process either. Uh, and so, you know, they'll talk about how, uh, uh, well, if, you know, Beowulf was written before Christianity arrived in, uh, you know, Northern Europe, but they talk about, you know, Grendel being a descendant of Cain. So therefore, the Vikings had an independent account that Cain existed and was a historical oh, wow. person. So it's kind of, they do that backwards, like just not being aware of this. Uh, and it's interesting too, because if you read the, uh, like the actual uh, uh, Viking accounts of the exploration of the Americas, they talk about the pagan gods, but then they talk about Christian gods as well. Because again, the pagan tradition, you know, the pagan you know, oral epics are later being transcribed by a German uh, or bishop, I guess. So he's Christianizing part of this, but leaving stuff out. So you get this kind of confusing amalgam of sometimes they're talking about Jesus, sometimes they're talking about Thor, and it's just <laughs> you can see how it's you know it's a living document of the process of Christianization. <laughs> and Beowulf is is talking about events in Scandinavia, but um, am I right in saying it, it's written in England and it's written in Old English? Is that yes? I I believe and. I may be getting this wrong. I believe it's one of the oldest Old English uh, uh, documents that exist. Uh, I think actually, I think the very oldest, I think is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. I know, I do remember the factoid that the first English link or like English word that's written down is keel, as in the keel of a ship, uh, you know, showing that. So I remember that. But I do think, I think Beowulf is, the original manuscript is found in a uh, old monastery in england i want to say i believe but yeah it's a that sounds like some of the kind of pseudo academic stuff that Crichton uses at the beginning of eaters yeah. <laughs> well <So. laughs> that's because he, uh, he mentions the zymos monastery like i don't know if you know but zymos it's this like organization it pops up through, it's in it's in prey sphere congo airframe so it's like this like mm. shadowy organization i mean it's not like a mate but it's a one of those little things that he keeps bringing up so i guess in michael Crichton's world i guess this like shadowy modern day company originated as like this byzantine monastery or <laughs> yeah he gives us the whole provenance of the uh uh even fadlan we should point out also that even fadlan is the other source for uh 
uh, Eaters of the Dead along with Beowulf. Uh, and he's actually the, you know, the narrator of Beowulf. Uh, he's an actual Arab who you know, went north. He left an actual manuscript. And the first couple chapters of Eaters of the Dead is very closely taken from the parts of Ibn Fadlan's manuscript. Uh, and actually, it's kind of funny in that Every time you look up Ibn Fadlan, they mention Eaters of the Dead. So I think the novel kind of helped you know, resurrect the memory of Ibn Fadlan. Probably mentioned that the book is written as a as a full doc, as a full historical document. Yeah, <laughs> in the style of, uh, as you say, this real this real document, um, written by a real historical character. And um, so that's a, that's part of the story too. Yeah, and he's he's like the actual Ibn Fadlan. His manuscript is it's one of the few like accounts of Viking culture from an outsider at the time and a lot of details of you know Viking life that you know became kind of stereotypical like you know burning the maidens on the boats you know when the chieftain died it comes from uh, his account uh, and that's like you no know, it's not a huge amount of his actual manuscript either he talks a lot about the Khazars and uh, the Turks he encounters and that's uh, a lot of just like we rode on a horse here then we rode on a horse there. Then we rode as a stuff. A lot of him, he complains a lot about his tra- like accompaniment. He was like, we're on the, you know, we're going north. And then, you know, so-and-so got tricked and lost all our money. So then we had to walk <laughs> the rest of the way. And but <laughs> in the early chapters of Eaters, you, you can feel Crichton kind of, on the one hand, he is, he's, he's doing his homework and he's trying to make this feel like a real document. And he's doing all that stuff you're talking about. But then he's also got his, I'm also a thriller writer. So he interrupts himself occasionally and says, you know, you know, Fadlan just kind of repeats so many dates, so many days of traveling. And he just doesn't, he doesn't, he just leaves it out. (laughs) Cause it's like, we we went here for, we traveled for two days and we came to this, this river and this river and this river and this river. And then Crichton says, you don't need to hear about this. Let's get to the, get to the Vikings. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's funny too, that, uh, you know, he talks, or he like, he has to insert, you know, like a dramatic reason for why even Fadlan had to leave uh, Baghdad, you know, he's like sleeping with someone's wife, and then, you know, he's, he's fleeing the, you know, caliph or the caliph's on it makes a very, has to insert some bit of uh, drama there, too. <laughs> okay, so in, so he's using the real document for the early chapters, and then things start to diverge, where he brings in more of the of the Beowulf material. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's, uh, I think it's about the, uh, around the time of the funeral rites, which again, when they're talking about uh, even Fadlan witnessing, uh, you know, someone dying in the Viking camp and then, you know, being burned on the boat, which again is from even Fadlan, but this starts to diverge. This is where Crichton inserts, you know, the Beowulf uh, stand. I think he, he goes from, he changes it from Beowulf to like, Bully whiff, so it's very uh, <laughs> not too subtle. It's, no. uh, keeps it pretty simple, but yeah. So there's a messenger from uh, Bully whiff's, uh, you know, hometown, basically saying, you know, the Vendal are attacking, and we need, you know, a band of you know 13 warriors, and one of them has to be a foreigner, and so you know, Bully whiff rounds up the people, and then uh, you know, takes them on a uh, you know trip up north to go back to his home. This is a, this passage in the, uh, but, you know, they kind of skip over how uh, even Fadlan learns to speak uh, Norse. I'm not sure exactly, but I, I really like that passage in the movie when it shows him kind of slowly picking up the language on the, 
the boat as there is a, I, I really enjoy that passage too, but I actually show some, a clip of this and I teach uh, my world history class of the movie, the part uh, when uh, Ibn Fadlan is complaining about the hygienic practices of the Vikings with uh, you know, them snorting into the bowl. And that's a good scene in the movie. And again, that's directly from Ibn Fadlan too. He, he talks, so I have them read that packet or that passage and I show the, uh, the scene from the, and the students are, you know, that's, that's it has a big effect on them. Yeah. There's I think a bit that just... made me laugh this week where he's, they're, they're having a, a, like a feast at the funeral and he says there's a bard singing songs about tales of, of you know, great deeds and two guys, a fight breaks out and these guys are punching each other and he says like there's blood splattering into the face <laughs> of the bard but he doesn't stop singing. Yeah. And I was, and I was very impressed by this, he says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's part of it too is, uh, you know, throughout the book, uh, he does kind of keep up these uh, discourses that, you know, if this was written as, you know, like a quote, like straight action narrative, there's, you know, he'll go on these like discourses of just, you know, mentioning like, you know, oh, so-and-so, you know, had me sing this story. So I sang that. And then the Vikings were unhappy because they explained, you know, blah, blah, blah about. So he does kind of keep up these past, you know, it's almost believable that, uh, uh, you know, you could read this like, all right, yeah, this is a historical manuscript, sure, because why would a novelist, you know, insert these passages that don't seem to connect to the... Uh... Such a, a tightrope for him to, to write as a popular novelist. Exactly. <laughs> at, the, at the beginning, in the intro, he almost apologizes for the dry tone. He says, look, this is a historical document. I'm sorry if it's kind of boring sometimes, but you can see he's, he's trying to get the characterization in there, even though Fadlan is writing as a as a cold, dispassionate observer, like an anthropologist, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and somehow Crichton's got to work in the characters and, and the feelings and the, it's, it's very interesting, especially for a, you know, a, a, a popular novelist, you know, relatively early in his career, he had su some success, but this must've felt like uh, a bit of, bit of a gamble. He must've been fairly confident in his abilities before we get to the, 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 the ancient evil that they are going North to fight. Eddie, I want, I want to know about your thoughts about in, in the intro, Crichton writing as himself, not as anybody else. Um, he talks about the, the change in thinking about the Vikings. So he says, you know, we tend to think about, quote unquote, civilization as being a Southern and an Eastern thing. You know, we all learn about the great empires from the Middle East and, and Greece and Rome, and then eventually filtering up to the pagan North. And now, and he's saying, now I want you to rethink about this through the eyes of this civilized Arab person, you know, coming to respect the the culture of the of the Northmen, and and this made me think a lot about what, what we said at the intro. You know, the the re this rehabilitation of the Vikings, which had happened already in the Victorian times, but he's trying to do it again. What what what, what do you think he's thinking about here? That, yeah, that definitely stuck to like rereading this. You know, a month or two ago, it's he he emphasized a lot. He's complaining a lot about you know people don't give you know. Western Europeans enough credit for being sick. I mean, it really struck me as something you would hear like the proud boys or something yeah. saying that. I mean, that's really what, and you know, I don't, I know a bit about Crichton's personal politics. I don't know as much about, you know, his views of, you know, race, I guess, but it just really struck me as someone just really desperate, you know, to say like Western Europeans were great too. You know, we, we made Stonehenge and just stuff like, but and it's especially funny too because if you read even Fadlan, the actual he's not coming across like he's not like oh yeah Vikings are great and obviously you know it's different because the real even Fadlan didn't go on a voyage to you know fight monsters and stuff but yeah I mean it's no one could really come across and say like he's definitely a guy who thought like yeah the Muslim 
world is the center of civilization and uh, it's, that's that. But, but yeah, I mean, that, that was my takeaway. That was kind of this, you know, Western chauvinism, Western pride type thing that you see with uh, certain elements of the far right now. I, I kind of felt like the film handled that a little, a little better. Um, obviously with the caveat that the, the main Arab is played by a Spanish guy <laughs> who is not of our Arab background, but it's, it's, um, uh, not, what's his name? Antonio Banderas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, who is who's great in the film? I, I really mm -hmm. enjoy him. Um, but like, I thought the film does a nice job of like, how unusual is it to get a film where the protagonist is an overt Muslim? He's a devout Muslim. His his devotion to his faith is is an important part of the film, and it's it's shown as being generally a positive thing. And like to me, one of the like, it's such a '90s film. It's such a <laughs> like these different cultures can get along and they're different, but that's not a problem. And they josh each other, you know, the, the Vikings yeah. <laughs> say to him, hey, maybe in your country, one God is enough, but for us, yeah. we need many. And it's like, we're different, but we complement each other. You know, he teaches them about civilization and writing, and they teach him about how to be uh, a warrior. And, you know, they all learn from each other. And it's it's very 90s, but it's, it's handled. I, I quite liked that element. I don't think you'd see that now. Yeah, yeah. It, it is kind of funny, like, no, the actual Arab actor in the movie, Omar Sharif, no, it's a great work. Apparently, like, he hated the movie so much, it just made him quit acting. So, and I think there's some, I forget the exact, but there's some quote within where he was like, after making this movie, I said to myself, you know, enough with this charade, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really sad because it is, it is an enjoyable film. We'll get to yeah. it. it. It does suffer from, you can, you can tell there were problems behind the scenes. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> It, the editing in it is a bit dicey especially like when you're dealing with so many characters you know the 13 warriors you don't get to know most of them properly and i, I can only imagine there's loads of edits where each character gets their little character beats and they yeah. got taken out and then when they when they're getting killed later on in the film you're not even sure who was that was that the guy with exactly. the red hair was that the... <laughs> it's almost like the hobbit movies where it's just there's too many hobbits and you know like okay one's the drunk one one's yeah. the old I, one but it's <laughs> not good films but i, I did yeah. think they handled, at least they handled that one thing okay like you knew each one got their very broad character beats whereas in the 13th warrior you only get to know a couple of them properly, I think, I feel anyway. Yeah. Actually, and speaking of the hot, I think J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote some essays on Beowulf. I mean, definitely it's one of the DNA strands that went into, you know, Ooh. Middle Earth. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was one of his areas of expertise. I, I yeah, yeah. He was lecturing. And if we get back to the plot, then once the, once Ibn Fadlan and, and the Vikings come to this North country and they start to learn a little bit about the, the nature of the 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 force that they're up against maybe we should mention that yeah it's uh the the mist monsters or the the vendal where they they come in uh with the mist uh you know at night and attack and you know they're seen as brutal they cut off the heads of uh the people they kill and you know later we find out they eat the brains which i think reflects also some of the uh scholarship at the time of uh neanderthals being cannibals which i think is i mean I, one of the interesting things, I think there was a very wide range of Neanderthal culinary habits. Like, as I recall, the, there's certain areas where Neanderthals practice some form of ritual cannibalism. There's areas where, by indications, uh, Neanderthals only ate seafood. They went, you know, uh, fishing. There's parts where Neanderthals only were vegetarian. So it is interesting that 
and we see this cultural thing. But I think the idea that Neanderthals existed solely off of cannibalism is not entirely accurate. But but in this case, these these Neanderthals, maybe because they're living for so long in you know the middle of you know Sweden, there wasn't a whole lot else, I guess. But but yeah, so there's these monsters who attack uh, you know, at night when uh, the mist comes. Like, apparently, only with the mist. And actually, I forget if this is tied in with. Beowulf, the original story, if like Grendel only attacks when the mist comes or not. I don't remember that, but uh, it did also kind of remind me of Game of Thrones where, uh, you know, the White Walk, they only attack when it's cold, but it's never really clear if, you know, they cause the cold or they have to come with the cold when it happens. Uh, uh, so there's this first battle and, uh, you know, they managed to kill, I think, one or two of uh, the Grendel and, you know, they cut one of their arms off, which again, goes with uh, the plot of Beowulf when uh, Beowulf cuts off Grendel's arm in the initial attack and Grendel goes home and complains to his mother and uh, they leave behind the, it's interesting too, of uh, the Venus figurines that uh, uh, get left behind, uh, the Venus of uh, Willendorf, which I think Crichton even in his afterward here, you know, he met, you know, the afterward where he's kind of, you know, speculating, oh, is even Fadlan describing the Neanderthals? You know, he has to kind of like, point out to the reader that these are supposed to be Neanderthal. He points out that the Venus figurines are not associated with Neanderthal culture. So even then it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, <laughs> way of tying in kind of like a generic, like, you know, caveman pass together. <laughs> and and the, the film, of course, not having the framework of the, the scholarly editor uh, is even more ambiguous about what these things are. Um, you know, there is, there, there's a section where they cut off the hand and you can see it's clearly quite beast-like. But uh, Banderos, throughout the whole film, is trying to tell the others they're just men, and and they, he emphasizes the fact that even though they look monstrous, it's because they're wearing these, they're wearing the skins of animals, and they're kind of trying to take advantage of maybe superstition. And it's only at the end when he sees the the mountain of skulls under the ground that he says, "Oh, these are not men." But that struck me as a decision made made based on behavior, not exactly like, yeah. their physicality. So in the film, to me, it's very open as to whether they really are some kind of creature or whether they are just a, a race of people who are barbaric and, you know, take on the form of monsters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and even uh, like in the book, I think even Fadlan talks a bit about that as well about, you know, whether they're uh, and, and one thing too is throughout this also, like there's these uh, footnoted annotations where uh, uh, Crichton will be like, you know, so-and-so a scholar at, you know, University of North Carolina said this in 1970, that this guy said, you know, just ramped his pulling up in a paper in 1927, J.G. Tomlinson pointed out, you know, but it's just funny because looking up some of these uh, footnotes, some of them are real scholars, others are completely made up. He's just using them. Inter it's just one of those things, too, where especially, you know, in 1976, when you know there's no Internet, it's just one of the things where if you were reading this, you just be like, Oh well, you know I've heard of this guy. I haven't heard of the other scholar. He must be, you know, is making. But Crichton himself writes in the afterward how when he was trying to like look up stuff in the book afterwards, he would look up his own footnotes and you know spend hours trying to find these authors, and then only realize you know later on that he had made them up. So he, he fooled even himself with this kind of uh, faux scholarship. But yeah, so in the footnotes too, you know. It's one of those things where it helps build up the idea that this is a historical document, but it's a good way too for like pointing out to the reader of just being like, all right, I want them to know that, you know, 
this is supposed to be, you know, a Venus figurine. So I'll put in this debate between these two made up academics about, you know, whether this is or is not. And, you know, it's like, they're quoting like this version of the Fadlan manuscript that also is made up that, but, you know, in his uh, fictional chronology has been discovered in the 1800s and therefore is, you know, has this whole century of fake debate. I mean, it's a, as a historian, this, I think the way he incorporates like a popular history and it's, it's a, it's a great piece of work too. Uh, it, it reminds me of H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft uh, mentioned in one of his letters that, you know, to be a good fiction writer, you have to be a good hoaxer basically because you have to make it so that it seems realistic. Actually Lovecraft, he wrote a paper on the history of the Necronomicon, which also did a very simple, he's tying in like fictional historians and real historians into it. Uh, uh, so, and actually that may have inspired Crichton because in his list of sources, and yeah, number three, general reference works, he has the Necronomicon edited by H.P. Lovecraft. So hmm. that was definitely in his mind at some point, which is also interesting because I think that is the only explicit Lovecraft reference in any of Crichton's works, at least from what I've been able to find. Uh, hmm. Some general similarities in some others, but at least for this book, there was a Lovecraft for whatever reason was one of the things that was in his mind, which also in 1976 would have been a bit rarer than it was now. Is there any provenance to the idea of, you know, ancient groups of people coming up against, you know, relic hominids or Neanderthals? Is, is that pure Crichton or do we know what might have been going on in his head with that? Again, there is this kind of like Victorian, you know, idea that, you know, ancient, uh, you know, fairies, stories or ogres, stuff like that are tied in with a uh, you know, Neanderthal, you know, the kind of like the quote racial memory of when, you know, Cro-Magnon man versus Neanderthal man are fighting. And that's why, you know, in Northern Europe, you have all those ogres and, you know, trolls and stuff that, so I know that was, especially in the Victorian era, a big idea. And I think, you know, sometimes you still see that come up too. So I think he was just kind of building off that idea, which is, I think, generally discredited now. Uh, there are also some I think like people in like, you know, Native Alaskans claims that some of their, you know, oral histories of, you know, fights with monsters are reflecting uh, uh, living mammoths and, or not, but mammoths from, you know, 10,000 years ago, uh, which I think also is kind of, I think it's more likely that those stories are just, uh, you know, inspired by them finding mammoth remains and then kind of building up monsters around there. But there is this kind of outdated notion of like, know the historical memory of you know prehistoric creatures has become modern day monster stories but uh that's my guess of what he's kind of uh building off of there you remember the reference you sent me a chapter from a book there was a chapter about the Turanian dwarf theory which is one, yeah. one one name for that that's a that was a uh if I'm remembering which one I said, I think that was when Lovecraft was talking about that also uh, and kind of building off that theory of, you know, dwarfs and ogres uh, uh, being the inspiration for that. Well, I got I got some good reading from that one because I, th I think it sent, <laughs> sent me reading um, John Buchan and the mm. No Man's Land where he, he's in he's in the north of Scotland in the Highlands and he finds this race of, you know, pre-human dwarf creatures and uh, obviously Benson, is it E.F. Benson, I think, wrote about it as well in the 20s. Yeah, yeah. And then most horrifyingly at all, I finally read Mackin's um, The Shining Pyramid. Oh. That's, a, that's a horrible one. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all dealing with that idea of the yeah. human race. 
actually John Buchan, his, he wrote a book called Prester John, which I think that has to have been an influence on uh, Congo by Crichton. It's one of those kind of uh, haggard type, you know, like lost race in South Africa. Although in that one, if, if I'm remembering, I think it's more like there's like uh, an uprising of like blacks in South Africa, but they're led by a guy who like claims to be from like the lost race of, you know, like ancient explorers and is just using that to lead the, yeah, it's, it's just, <laughs> wow. yeah. yeah, he was, he was like, with with him, the colonialism was never uh, a subtext. It was always a yeah. text. <laughs> I think didn't he, he went on to become like governor general of Canada, I believe, or he had some major uh, like colonial administrative uh, position, I believe. So that's those are kind of like Victorian ideas of like pre-human creatures. I want to jump forward a bit to sort of like, I, I mean, The Lost World, I always bring up, I'm faintly obsessed with, but like, to me, it's a real <laughs> linchpin in this because it it takes all these disparate ideas and puts them into one package, which has been imitated so many times ever since. <laughs> and obviously the main climax of that film is, you know, humans banding together, different kinds of humans banding together against the ape men. Um, <laughs> and, and that got me thinking about, you know, I mean, the same thing shows up in Burroughs novels at about the same time. Um, and they're this eternal enemy that always, they're always the villain. They always have to be <laughs> defeated. They always have to be wiped out. There's never a story where, you know, there's never a lost world story where you come across the pre-human and it's it's wondrous and magnificent, like with dinosaurs. Yeah. They're always the enemy. So like, is it some sort of Darwinian anxiety that's being, you know, that's being played oh, that's, out? That's, yeah. I mean, that's or like, like a social Darwinian, uh, especially because, oh, oh. you know, like it's, uh, I think, yeah, in this book too, you know, Crichton takes such pains to talk about how, you know, the Vikings are so tied, you know, they're so, they have their own civilization, they're so tied in with, uh, you know, everything else, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the mist monsters, they're literally just living in caves, you know, eating each other, it's, uh, I think it's easy to see that as kind of like a, a civilizational strife, you know, like, one one of these groups, you know, they may both be, you know, barbaric to even Fadlan, but one of them is, you know, one of these groups is kind of developing, the other is regressing. Uh, I think you can definitely see that. Uh, I should point out too, like historically, Vikings were, you know, very or the Norse, I guess, which are very connected. I mean, they traded with the Muslim world. I mean, they're very connected with the Byzantine Empire. I mean, they said you know, Normandy is called Normandy because the Norse took it over and settled there. Uh, the Norman kings of Sicily, again, like I uh, was at Roger II, very closely connected with the almost more closely connected to the Arab world than you know to the rest of Christian Europe at the time. So, I mean, they were very connected. Uh, had their high degree of you know, civilization, as Crichton would probably term it. Uh, uh, not just these. Mar uh, marauding bands but still even by the view of even Fadlan not a uh, uh, great not not a very admirable uh, group of people my city owes quite a bit to its its Viking background uh, <laughs> as, as do many in the, in the country and um, so how to what degree was this book taken like as, as a literary hoax to what degree was it taken seriously and like I think people, there... did people buy this was it presented as a full-on hoax I don't know if it's, I mean, I, I feel like if you're buying a Michael Crichton book, I'm sure you're going to, but, but it's, you do sometimes like, just like doing casual browsing, you do sometimes see like, oh, uh, you know, like was Grendel a Neanderthal or, you know, like did even Fadlan, no, see Neanderthal. So sometimes that stuff still comes up and, you know, I think it's pretty clear that there is 
he did a good job. So I think there is, it's probably more secondhand stuff like people just being like, oh yeah, I kind of remember hearing about, you know, a story of, you know, Vikings fighting Neanderthals and then that, you know, goes to someone else and then kind of gets passed around much like, you know, all these, you know, supernatural stories, kind of just a game of telephone. <laughs> so I have a note here about um, just the, let's see what I wrote. Yeah, like the, the kind of the noble savage trope, which again, I, like you're, you're making me realize that Crichton is very much dealing with all these 19th century ideas and just putting a lick of paint on them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as he did throughout his career. But uh, like I wrote down that this is a kind of an interesting reversal of the noble savage trope, which is obviously the the, the dances with wolves trope, the last samurai trope, the uh, James Cameron blue people trope, where yeah. like a European person goes into this culture that Europeans find interesting, and then he's better at it than they are, and he he manages to save them usually from his own people. Um, but this is reversed in that. The white people, the white northern Anglo-Saxon <laughs> people, are the savages, and the civilized person is 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 a Muslim. But I guess you know, thinking about it now, it's like, well, just because he's the protagonist, like, where is the sympathy? The sympathy really is with the Vikings or the the Northmen. Mm -hmm. Like, he's trying to convince you that actually they're they're <laughs> better, or at least you know, more worthwhile than you you thought. <laughs> well, it's in, in that even that's kind of a. Uh, uh, Victorian era assumption. There's the fear that, you know, the settlers who go into these colonies, uh, especially at least in my research, you see this a lot in the African case of how, uh, you know, it's good, you know, for whites to go settle in Africa. But there's always this fear that if you're going to spend your time amongst the natives, then you're going to get kind of contaminated by their savagery or you're kind of kind of degenerate a bit also culturally. Uh, I mean, even on a wide scale, this was kind of one of the British views of the Afrikaners in South Africa. Like, all right, these Dutch people have been here 200 years longer than we have. So, you know, they're 200 years further removed from you know, true European civilization. Or you see us with like Livingston too, just so like, Oh, this one guy is hanging out, you know, in Malawi for, you know, a couple of years on his own. He's going to become like a savage as well. Uh, and actually, uh, specifically, uh, this was a, actually Livingston himself, but a lot of British, they make this criticism of uh, the Portuguese living in what's now Mozambique, this idea that, you know, along the Zambezi River, that these little like Portuguese outposts have been isolated for so long that, you know, the whites are now being dominated by the black natives and just the, so it was a, especially a British criticism of the Portuguese settlers in uh, Southern Africa, but just overall, just the fear of uh, losing your purity by, you know, being with the other. Catching the, the Mal d'Afrique, I've read it. Exactly. Probably from the, the French, I suppose. And I definitely have read the English describing the, the Afrikaners as, as like Africa's only white tribe. Yeah. In sense, using the word tribe as a derogatory, like you've yeah. been here too yeah. long. <laughs> I think also you can see an example of this in uh, Eaters of the Dead, how uh, something I noticed, but, you know, at the start, even Favlan is like, oh, they, you know, the tick, they drink this terrible mead, but don't worry, I didn't partake. And then you know, there's a couple pages later, like, oh, it tastes so bad. Then a few pages, like, oh, it's not that bad. And next, you know, at the end, he's just like, I'm, I'm drinking the whole uh, goblet down to steady my nerves. And actually, I know you like having a, your beer on the show. It's a bit early in the day for me, but in honor of Eaters of the Dead, I do have 
bottle of mead here. So oh, wonderful. I, I won't drink the whole thing, but I'll probably take some of this later uh, in <laughs> honor of uh, you know the victory over the mist monsters. <laughs> honey, it's made. It's made of honey. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, any, anything else to say about the book, or we, we might mention the film after the after? Yeah, that. I mean, not so. Like, I did. I was curious where, especially in the nineteen seventies what version of the even like the actual even Favlan manuscript Crichton was reading because there's a few different translations that have come out uh I'm not sure how many of them would have been really available in the 1970s so it was it was very curious about like if he had even read the whole thing or just kind of the passages with uh 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 the Vikings which I think are kind of the more popular ones uh because you know there are parts in this where there are things he kind of describes even Fadlan saying that don't really match up with the actual even like what he says. And I mean, obviously he could have fictionalized it, but it did just make me interested and curious which aspects of the manuscript he found. And actually, I think I mentioned this to you too, but it is interesting too that in uh, the actual even Fadlan manuscript, he comes across a. Uh, uh, race of giants living in the Volga River that he describes as being uh, you know, of the race of Gog and Magog, these uh, monsters. Uh, uh, I guess they're in kind of Christian Jewish mythology too, but especially prominent in the Quran. So, uh, you know, he says, you know, this tribe of Gog and Magog, these giant, you know, furry men are living up in, uh, you know, the Volga River. So I wondered too if, you know, if he had read that bit and that had kind of, uh, tied in somewhat with maybe an inspiration for this but uh uh he, he says uh i saw his head it was like a great beehive his ribs were like the stalk of a date cluster and the bones of his legs and arms were enormous too i was astonished at the sight then i went away and then you know, a new pass but <laughs> his bluntness is amazing yeah <laughs> if, if i remember Crichton specifically says in his intro that we can trust Fadlan, when he talks about the mist people, precisely because he's not one of these travelers who goes and writes about, you know, men with one leg or yeah. men with a, a face in their stomach, you know, and he says, that that was like the fashion 200 years later. But this guy is so dry and so boring that we must take him seriously when he talks about the mist people. <laughs> I know. It is funny. It's like just a few pages after that, too, he talks about, oh, yeah, there's these uh, giant rhinoceroses that live up here, uh, no, in the middle of Russia, which... Anyone, you know, it's obviously, but he gives, again, it's interesting because he gives this huge description of like, oh yeah, these giant rhinoceroses living up there. And then, you know, at the end of the paragraph, it's just like, anyway, that's what people told me. I didn't actually see one, but uh, I saw some plates that were made out of, uh, you know, his horn. So, <laughs> but it's just like, uh, and I think I was reading some, argument said he was probably seeing plates made from a mammoth ivory from Siberia, but it just kind of, again, through that game, a telephone became a, a, a rhinoceros that just happens to live in the forests of Russia, because obviously that's where rhinoceroses would live. Uh, but again, you know, it's just the idea that even Fadlan is only reporting the facts. It's just, yeah. it's, and even just like in general, medieval Arab travel writing, it's full of, uh, you know, the myth, you know, they're talking, if a, uh, uh, there's another great Arab travel writer, even Batuta, who lives a few hundred years after this. But if you read his account, and I would recommend, I mean, he traveled pretty much everywhere across Eurasia and Africa. But, you know, he's talking about seeing like an immortal mystical man who teleports between India and China. He's talking about, you know, seeing the place where uh, 
you know, Adam hit the earth after getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which is located in space. And he followed, but it's just like, uh, he's talked about, you know, seeing phoenixes getting reaped, but, you know, just the, the whole sense of, it's a different type of, you know, kind of the senses of wonder, I guess, from medieval Christian writing, but it's throughout medieval Arab writing as well. I mean, even Fadlan, he's, he's a poet too. So it's, not like he's, you know, not used to flowery writing or creative interpretations. But that like, yeah, you know, it sounds like the kind of thing that somebody like, you know, Bernard Hubelman's later would, would look <laughs> up and take at face value. And, oh, and absolutely. Like, you know, yeah. Somebody was reporting rhinoceros in <laughs> in the Russian taiga, you know? Yep, yeah. I used to read, this reminds me, I used to read Amon Malouf. He wrote, you know, um, Samarkand and Leo Africanus and it's it's fictionalized but again it's it's based on these ideas of these medieval um Arab travelers and uh, how they saw the world I used to really like those books it's yeah it's uh and I mean John Mandeville you know the guy writing about the the, the blemies those are the creatures with uh, their heads and their stomachs but yeah it's or uh, the uh is it the canacephalus the dog-faced uh <laughs> yeah it's just uh I mean his his whole thing is great it, it's a great genre. I mean, you can see why John Mandeville was next to the Bible, the best-selling uh, you know, yeah. book in Europe for hundreds of years. I mean, Columbus took John Mandeville's book with him on his voyage, and he's using it to identify like where in India he is based on what John Mandeville is. <laughs> I wonder he saw mermaids when he got there. I know, yeah. <laughs> Umberto Eco wrote a book, I think, spoofing that. It was a Baudolino, where Baudolino is this famous liar who travels mm. around medieval Europe, and he invents all these tall tales and then eventually he goes off the map and starts reporting all of those creatures but he, he's, a, he's a he's a liar that's his whole purpose yeah well it's in, and even uh, in eaters of the dead too there's a section where he talks about uh where but he, he talks about you know these monsters that live in the uh ocean and you know Crichton puts a little footnote in saying like he's describing whales uh but uh again it's one of those things where even Fadlan would have known what a whale was but the idea that you no know, it's again like these monsters are coming out of uh, you know either uh, what's being reported by travel writers at the time or how subsequent writers are then you know choosing to interpret those stories. Right. We should talk about the film, Eddie, because I think it's I think it's better than most people remember. I think it's worth going back and taking a look. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I I liked it. It's uh, it, again, I think it has kind of like a bit of a roller coaster. Like I remember at the time when it came out just being slammed. I think it's one of those things where they didn't know how to really uh report or how to promote it at the time. I think I remember the poster didn't even have you know, and it had like I think like an eye in the center and then you know a boat and it's just one of those things where uh I think the the cast is good, the concept is good, uh you know the acting is good for what it is. And uh I, I think it's if it came out today, I think it would have done better uh and it's in, although at the same time you know there are kind of like versions of like there's some movie that came out a couple of years ago like maybe it's called pathfinder, pathfinder. but yeah it's, it's, i mean that's if i remember right it's like that's based around like the wendigo too and kind of incorporates vikings and you know uh the new world and the vendigo that's and the this, one that has these super hench vikings with this yeah like, ridiculously <laughs> enormous wearing this crazy armor very stylized but yeah yeah <laughs> There was an Irish um, animated film made by the, the studio in Kilkenny who recently have had big success with Wolfwalkers. They did an earlier mm. film called The Secret of Kells about, like, yes. again, it's it's a very stylized medieval Ireland, but the Vikings are the baddies and they're 
portrayed as these hulking monstrous shadows with <laughs> the old-fashioned horned helmets, which of they course. know is ridiculous. But yeah. <laughs> like when, when you're familiar with Irish uh, history and folklore, the, the Vikings are always the baddies. They're always these this mysterious force that will come out of the night and take you because all we're taught well you know some in my age we were taught always about the raids and the raids mm. and the raids and how you know the the monasteries were always being pillaged non-stop so the vikings <laughs> were like this scary force that would come from without and this film you know kind of i think is deliberately playing with this very old-fashioned uh idea of them as these kind of almost monstrous beings yeah and it's interesting too that you know this is directed by john mctiernan who did predator and so you can kind of see a bit of that yeah. it's in his career is a predator die hard hunt for red october now three very different again probably the ones he's best known i mean oh he did last action hero too which again if you think about it the way in which that kind of takes like how fiction and reality kind of overlap you can see some of those themes i think uh, in the 13th warrior too but. yeah so i i think one worth going back and taking a look look at it it flopped hard at the time and i think like you say it was probably badly done by done by the studio and and, and not promoted um and correctly but there's there's definitely some stuff in it that's very much of its time and that you wouldn't see today yeah uh, but then like you say i think this stuff is very popular now vikings is very popular last kingdom is huge mm. uh, obviously game of thrones and <laughs> maybe the sort of thing that could use a, a reboot I don't always say that, but, you know, for films that are like nearly very good, but exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, those are the ones that should be remaking. Stop remaking classics, start remaking things that just need a little more polish, you know? Well, it's interesting because, you know, there's not really any good Beowulf movies in general. I mean, like, even like, I guess probably the best one is, uh, was it the Robert Zemeckis movie? And even that's, I mean, it takes so much uh, liberties with the original. I think it's, even doing this, like a straight Beowulf movie, it's just kind of hard to do, I think, for whatever reason. Maybe because it's, well, even then, it's kind of a three-act structure, too. So, I mean, you could do it like that. But uh, it's just funny because I think my experience with Beowulf, more than anything else, is I was a big fan as a kid of uh, the science fiction author, Larry Niven. And he's a guy who was obsessed with, or he's still up, but he's clearly obsessed with Beowulf because so much of his science fiction has these references to Beowulf throughout it. And I feel like most adaptations of Beowulf come out are things like the Christopher Lambert, like post-apocalyptic Beowulf or stuff <laughs> like, so I think it's almost like King Arthur. It's like a trope that maybe works best, you know, when you do it in a different setting, or at least it's maybe easier to, uh, popularize as that right um have we is there anything we haven't covered that we, you'd like to mention i, I think um, that's i think we uh, i did notice that you know they specifically mention uh the miss monsters worshiping cave bears and i was wondering if that's kind, mm -hmm. kind of an attempt to piggyback off the clan of the cave bear which i think came out right before this uh but again it is interesting that you know you can see this as kind of like part of the wave of like you know prehistoric uh uh fiction that was you know quest for fire stuff like that all coming out around this stuff actually if i'm remembering right clan of the cave bear aren't the neanderthals in that like telepath like there's there's some strange like uh like paranormal stuff that get applied to neanderthals there too oh my goodness <laughs> I i've been avoiding mentioning something because i thought it was too silly but there's a in the wake of jurassic park in 19 or you know probably before the film came out but after the book was a big success there, again there was there was a lot of sort of prehistory fiction cryptozoology kind of fiction and a lot of it was about you know relic hominids hominoids mm. and there was one called neanderthal written by a new york guy john darnton 
which I get, you know, they discover a race of Neanderthals living in, I think, Tajikistan in the Pamirs. Pamirs <laughs> and yet they have psychic abilities. <laughs> and there's all this cold war yeah, stuff. That, I feel like that's a big, like, psychic Neanderthal. I've seen that a couple other places too. And I don't know. I guess I feel like vaguely there is some study that said, oh, Neanderthals actually had bigger brains than you know, modern humans and something like that. But yeah, it's just, that's a big, one of the more interesting kind of like modern Neanderthal tropes is, uh, uh, he's a British science fiction author, Stephen Baxter. And he's written a few books where like, just among all the crazy ideas are uh, like, you know, aliens took, you know, ancient Neanderthals, you know, set them up in a colony on like another. So yeah, like space Neanderthals in the future and just stuff like that. But <laughs> I'm, go I'm going to do a small reading. You you've reminded me of something. So the idea of like psychic or, or otherwise kind of wise, you know, ape men living in, in the mountains or inaccessible places should should start making people think about, I suppose, theosophy and ascended masters who, who in, in some in some cases are explicitly connected with, with mm -hmm. yetis. And I'm sure you've seen yeah, that yeah. in some places. So this is from Life and Times of, of, of a Legend uh, by Joshua Bluebuzz. You probably know this one. It's like a social history of, of Bigfoot and okay, Abominable yeah. Snowman. And he, he, he kind of, he, he kind of uses it as a metaphor for like what was going on with the British empire, what was going on with the American working class. And he, when he's talking about the Yeti and the, the kind of hype about that in the twenties, he says, this is from the point of view of the British. He says, often the Yeti was portrayed as a repository of ancient hard-won wisdom, the kind of wisdom uh, possessed by Britain after centuries of imperial rule. I'm wondering how old the face is, one character says of a Yeti in the movie, The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. That's the Nigel Neal one, which I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. So he, he's saying, like, did the British see this as a, as a, a reflection of their own you know, it's a bit of a stretch, but I enjoyed it. It's a fun, <laughs> so that you're only a hop, skip and a jump then from, you know, ancient wise Neanderthals who have some ability that we've lost, whether it's, you know, purely psychic or whether it's like the ability to live in harmony with nature. You know, he later talks about Bigfoot uh, in, in the context of the, the ecology movement, you know, seeing yeah. as a, yeah, I, I love that stuff. <laughs> just the last one I'll bring up is I just remembered this too is the movie Ten Thousand BC by Roland Emmerich, which I think it's a terrible movie, but it's <laughs> worth watching just because like it ties in. It's it's clearly influenced by Graham Hancock, but you know like, you have stuff like Atlantis, ancient aliens, like the pyramids being built like by woolly mammoths hauling up bricks. But like one of the things is like the main, you know, it's a tribe of cavemen, but their shaman is like this Neanderthal. So it's, you know, like, wow. again, it's like the Neanderthal is like leading the modern humans, but also has like the psychic vision powers. And it, it's just, it's actually, I think Omar Sharif may have been no. in that one. He, he dropped uh, out of oh, acting. Yeah, he's the, He's the narrator of 10,000 BC. Yeah, so. <laughs> he dropped out of acting because of the 13th Warrior, and he came back for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's worth watching just because, again, it's one of those movies that, like, it integrates everything. And, like, <laughs> I think listeners are used to me recommending films that aren't good, but, you yeah. know, comment on something, some, some yeah. esoteric topic. That's that's brilliant. That's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot of connections. Um. We, we might leave it there if, if that's everything. I Eddie, where can it. people find your work or is there any anywhere <laughs> online you'd like to point people towards? I got my uh, my Twitter hand is at Edward underscore Guimont. I, I was thinking, I, got, I think I may actually try and finish up my website soon. That's been a process for almost a year now, but I think 
I may try and actually devote some time to that. So maybe this summer, the website will finally get done. But if it is, you can, I'll link to it on my Twitter. So for now, at least my Twitter is the place to go. <laughs> Excellent. I'll put a link to that in the notes as usual. Eddie, thank you so much. Always, always a pleasure. I always learn so much. <laughs> it's great to be here. Yeah, and I uh, can't wait till the next time we get a chance to talk. Well, that is it for now, folks. As always, huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Eddie Umont, for being a tremendous resource, as always, uh, and just all-around great fun to talk to, as always, as well. Uh, interesting listening back to this during the editing, how uh, partway through I'm on this bent of the idea of the pre-humans in fiction and, and fantastic ideas as being entirely a negative one. They are the bad guys. They are you know, the, the subject of some sort of Darwinian anxiety. And then later on, I'm kind of reminded that there is another strand whereby you have this kind of ancient, mystical and wise pre-human. Um, again, weird ideas about evolution, root races, and getting into the theosophy stuff there. But incidentally, I really, really do recommend that 1950s uh, Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas film, uh, uh, written, I believe, by Nigel Neal, who should re require no introduction to most listeners. Last thing I'm going to say, after the episode was done, um, Eddie got in touch online, having found um, something very interesting and relevant. He's going through the journals of the International Society of Cryptozoology. These are mostly from the 80s, and there's all sorts of bizarre stuff in some of them. So what he found was um, a small note saying, the survival of Neanderthal man into the 18th century in the Pyrenees was conjectured by several European authorities. This has now become more likely since a Neanderthal mandible has been found at the Boquette de Zafariya in Spain, uh, placing it much later than the normally accepted date of extinction of Neanderthal in Western Europe. Uh, that's from volume 8, page 101 from 1989, and that is from the International Society of Cryptozoology journal. And um, after he posted this, a bunch of clever people um, made other links to similar things and other bizarre stuff that they've uh, covered in, in those particular issues, which just reminds me, as always, I have a lot more reading to do and uh, a lot more to learn. So until next time, folks, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a box.